0: I mean I always try and like remind people this because it sounds so quaint because they're like posting the pat um but the thing is this my is my
1: mind is blown sorry <laughs> can I just say like the, the post
0: office like... like... <laughs> it's
1: like
2: amazing welcome to surviving society with
1: Chantel and Tiso.
2: Britain's regressing to the 19th century and doing it with our eyes open
1: hello everyone welcome to another week of surviving society we are really excited it's a hot friday with Tom Mills hello Tom Mills, who is a lecturer at Aston University, a sociologist. I Would you call yourself yeah. a sociologist? Yep. Yeah. Sociologist do, yeah. and author of the BBC, The Myth of a Public Service. Hello, Tom. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me.
2: Hi, Tom. Hello.
1: I wanna start off quite controversially and say, in the last month, first time in my adult life, thoughts of cancelling my T V licence. Mm. Okay. I don't think I'm on my own in that.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, I, I'm gonna start off controversy in saying that people shouldn't do that, or at yes. least they no. shouldn't do that without, well, I'm not against people canceling their TV license, but I think if, if people are gonna think about cancelling the license fee, we need to at the same time be thinking about what we would put in its place.
2: But uh, Maybe we're jumping a bit ahead. Yeah, what I, what was I was gonna right? say, I was gonna yeah, like, say, take it back, right? <laughs> Sorry, like, sorry,
1: sorry, I went straight in there. <laughs> so I would kind like, of think it's like,
2: what would you just find what is a public service I think that's the kind of place to start yeah what do you mean by myth of the public service well myth of public service that wasn't actually
0: my title that was the publisher's title and everyone seems to like it so that's good but I I guess I think I would have gone with a title like I don't know the BBC and the establishment or something like that that's what the book's about and
1: how they get away with it yeah and
0: (laughs) how they get away with it and somebody else they would be doing it It yeah no, I'm really bad with titles. I could sit there for yeah. like half an hour and yeah, just come yeah. up with nothing. But anyway, like, you know, okay, so what is the public service? I mean, the book's really about how the BBC... Didn't live up to that claim to to be delivering a public service, and in that respect, it's, the title is, I guess, is pretty sound. Um, but the thing is, like, if you look at the literature on on public service broadcasting in particular, I mean, it becomes quite a good question because actually people aren't really exactly sure what it means. But basically, it tends to get defined against a consumerist model of media production. So you're not just delivering something to an audience that's paying something you are making decisions um, which have some different kind of ethos beyond commercialism. But classically, you'd have different features, which which comes back to this question of the license fee, actually, which are associated with public service. And one of them is universality. So the idea that everybody should have access to this. Payment model for the BBC is very different to other kinds of of private media. And that kind of reflects an important part of the BBC that I think we'd want to preserve. The reason why I say public service is a myth is when it brings in other elements of it. So not that stuff. I think the fact that the BBC isn't commercial is all good. Um, but what the BBC doesn't do, at least what the evidence shows that the BBC doesn't do, is it's not really impartial and it's not really independent. So these are other kind of values that are sort of bound up with the idea of public service broadcasting. It tends to be defined against... A state broadcaster, so where the government is literally running the broadcasting service. So people tend to think of you know total, totalitarian states and like state propaganda. And public service broadcasting tends to be defined against that. Now, what I'm trying to show in the book is that in some ways this is a very misleading understanding of the BBC. That in actual fact, I mean, number one, it's never really been impartial on very key issues. I mean, there's a lot of research on the BBC's reporting. Number two, it's never been independent. And these are the two claims which tend to be made about the BBC. I'm not saying it's like an instrument of the government, and this i go into some detail in the book, but it's never been completely independent of governments, uh, in the sense that the governments have been able to control its funding mechanisms. They've been able to appoint people to its board. But also, it's certainly never been independent of the broader sort of establishment, you know, the set of interests which govern British society. So not just the government, corporate sector. I mean, we can get into the into yeah. those questions. But the question of whether the BBC is, remains a state broadcaster, I think, is mm. is an interesting one. You know, what do we mean by that? And and how authentically can we say the BBC
2: is independent? The model in my house was BBC is like formal and ITV was for your nonsense and so all your crazy stuff. So I always thought it was a quasi-autonomous kind of thing. It wasn't fully independent because it's people speak the Queen's English, and but I always viewed it as a high-quality form of information. Yeah, I think that's
1: right. Though. And I always sort of thought of it as... Yeah, growing up, I just thought, oh, it's on the BBC, that means it's right. It's sort of like a assumed objectivity. And it's only even like in the last few years, I've sort of realised, like, and I know you talk about this in your book, about people that are sort of at the top of the BBC and how they've been journalists for like right wing newspapers and stuff. And it's like, I sort of never really, and it sounds like a stupid thing to say, but I never really put two and two together that there would be people that had highly political motivations that would be within those spaces i know that sounds so naive but i honestly just saw it as something objective and obviously that just doesn't exist
0: well so an interesting question here like you mentioned like the queen's english actually i should have mentioned that in originally when we're talking about public service broadcasting because one of the early kind of ethos of it was what this sort of what's called reefian ideal named after john reef who was the founding father of the bbc and the idea there basically was that the, B, the people who run the BBC will define what good culture is and, and what happens with ITV when independent television starts and the whole the whole media system becomes more commercialised is, yeah, you get this more sort of populist, uh, kind of um, less formal, stuffy kind of approach. But the BBC changes a bit as well. I mean, I, th- I think, like sociologically the two are kind of connected in so far as yeah that that was the sort of language and the mores and the sort of ways of holding yourself with the british upper middle classes the british establishment and that was really deeply embedded in the bbc and i think it is even even now i mean it, it, it's changed but the thing is that people tend to have this history of the bbc where it's gone from the sort of stuffy dinner jacket guy reading the news to a more sort of casual relaxed kind of vibe but the thing is the British establishment itself has changed during that time, you know. So we, yeah. when we think of the BBC changing, we need to think, okay, you know, that's all well and good. The BBC's changed, but the BBC's changed, and this is really what the book is about, or at least what the research I did that the book is based on is about: is when British establishment changed from the nineteen seventies up to the present day. What did that do to the BBC? What was the process of change that the BBC went through? And a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, like the high mindedness, but also that ethos of the market not being good. And this was really important to the BBC, this idea that the market can't deliver good, these sort of cultural goods, shouldn't deliver these cultural goods. This is very central to put, to God, they are being shown and,
1: up now, aren't they? But the, the thing that, is, that, yeah. yeah, but
0: the thing is, what happened with the BBC is that that it became more commercial. The book, argues more neoliberal. And we could go into some detail about what more specifically. I meant by that, because it sounds quite vague, but it's a very specific and deliberate cultural change that the BBC underwent they became more market-like in in their whole processes in terms of their commissioning, in terms of how they um, operate in the wider kind of media space. And that had a big impact on on how the BBC delivered these kinds of things. So what I basically argue in the book, in a nutshell, is that the BBC went from a sort of top-down status organisation, a sort of quasi-independent, like you say, organisation, to... A neoliberal bureaucracy, basically, one that is much more reflective right. of business interests, it's much more reflective and of uh, market interest, much more embedded in the capitalist market, and that's been actually accelerated since since I wrote the
2: book as well. Because I was going to say, for me, so in that kind of the kind of first half, it in that kind of quasi autonomous kind of state, it's kind of seen as like a kind of delivering high quality goods that's not really questioned, right? Mm-hmm but this shift into that neoliberal state it's seeing people start to well it's best setting from my research people start to question the bbc in a way i've never seen before mm-hmm. uh, that doubt yeah, in yeah, it yeah. that in the bbc's news and like when i go to see my parents my grandparents in grenada the bbc they watch that news. They don't watch CNN. They don't watch any else. They watch the BBC because it's seen as the truth. Mm-hmm. But this notion of truth has been questioned by people who I never really would questioning My before.
1: nan and granddad they will not watch the news on the BBC. Like they vote yeah. like Tory, but like yeah, my nan and granddad they will not watch BBC news. They will only watch ITV yeah. news or Sky news. But that
2: that shift maybe is, is that shift part that shift into a neoliberal kind of market state. But is that? Part of this kind of notion that people start to question how it all.
1: How have they gone from being like trust, like the trust, to the opposite? It's, that, yeah. it's a really
0: interesting question, mate. Because the BBC publishes its own um, research on how trusted it is and how impartial its audience think it is, and basically it tends to be roughly the same as the other highbrow broadcasters or or the broadsheets, and much much more respected and trusted than you know the tabloid press, which you know everyone, even its readers, know is a joke. But the thing is, that the questions they ask, um, like we all know about, about polling and surveys, do lead you in certain directions. So the weird thing happened to me, actually, uh, a few weeks ago, I got a ring on the door and it was a pollster coming around asking questions. I was like, oh, okay, it's interesting. You know, as a social scientist, I can be on the receiving end of some questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, when she comes and I made her a cup of tea and um, she started asking me some questions about what I thought about this, that, and the other. And they were all about media. And then they got onto the BBC. And I was like, do you mind me asking you, like, who commissioned the poll? And she's like, oh, it's it was the BBC. You know, it's the public attitudes to, to the broadcasting. And then there was like a little section on something else. I was like, well, first of all, this freaked me out massively because I was like, what is the probability? of me being interviewed about yeah, the BBC but the point I was going to make was that actually I gave the BBC quite high ratings and obviously I don't have a rosy tinted view of the BBC and its politics and its pace in British society but there are certain things that the BBC tends to do well um, or at least better than other news outlets so it will tend to report accurately on some issues it will get you shouldn't trust it so much I mean like so on British foreign policy on like um I mean, people followed its reporting on Corbynism, like I think they've been very, very poor. But generally speaking, the BBC will, will, if if someone said something, the BBC says someone said something or something's happened, usually that will be the case. They don't completely fabricate things like, you know, a lot of the tabloid press. Um, So I I think there there are elements of the BBC which I think are good. Now, going back to this question of, okay, what's happened with trust in the BBC? I mean, I think it'd be really interesting to do like some qualitative research and to really get into it. But I think what what's happened is that a whole set of institutions, of which the BBC is one, which I would describe as the the establishment, that is to say, the people and the institutions that make up that structure of power in British society, have have been sort of on the slide for the in the neoliberal period. And I think as we've gone into this sort of period of very protracted crisis that we're in now, I think the BBC and the other institutions, and to some extent academia, have been sort of swept up in that. And the last time this happened was in the 1970s. People started to say, oh, I don't trust the BBC people on the left started to see the BBC as being, um, you know, this sort of remote patrician kind of um, organisation that doesn't represent the diversity of British society. It's, you know, very class biased. It was very hostile to the organised working class. And at the same time, the right starts to, at that point, mobilise against the BBC as well. And that sort of goes into factories. Oh, my God, so that's
1: what's happening now. I,
0: I think there are, there are echoes of it that we're seeing now, which is that basically... When you get in these periods of crises, there goes through that sort of process of something like a legitimacy crisis of the institutions. But I think probably what 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 we're seeing is is less to do with like oh okay everything went wrong in two thousand and eight and then suddenly everybody doesn't trust experts or whatever. I I would see this as a much much more um, protracted crisis of um, trust in 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 British institutions. I think the, the BBC's part. So I think that like, the BBC's little you know, it's it's, it's, a, it's a facet of that, but the BBC is also, like, bound up in that official world of Westminster and, and Whitehall and expertise and, and, and the liberal and conservative institutions, I think. So So I think that's what's going on. And I think also all the stuff we're maybe more familiar with, like the, the fracturing of the media landscape, the sort of polarisation around polit- yeah. particular political issues, like, say, Brexit has been very difficult for the BBC. And I think one of the interesting things that's happened at the moment... I often get asked about this, but I, don't, I, I can only just sort of talk impressionistically, really. If it's about BBC and Brexit, I think, like, liberals and centrists have got angry with the BBC in a way that we've probably not seen before. And that's probably the interesting thing, because, like, the left and the right have never really trusted the BBC that much. But I think, like, the the liberal middle classes in this country would more or less own the BBC. You know, it is it caters towards yeah, them, and yeah, that's, it. that's its right. centre of gravity. And I new. think for them now, my feeling is what's happening is that, like... The BBC has been pulled to the right in this moment of crisis, uh, and and that's created this sort of protracted sort of crisis there. And we're not really seeing it in polls yet on the
2: BBC, but I think we probably will um, if something doesn't change. So I was going to say, in this kind of fragmented landscape, right? So where you can pay for any content you want, right? So one of the ideas embedded in kind of, especially in the post-war Britain, is the idea of universality, yeah. national national insurance to pay for a health service that benefits everyone information here we're talking about information that benefits everyone so i'm willing to contribute a little sum to get this this good that's not kind of tainted with the market in this kind of environment like in this current environment where you can pay for anything and get this information from anywhere does the bbc have a place does that have, there's this idea of a service that you pay for. Yeah, to get
0: I, I think it absolutely does. I, I, I think that actually, exactly what you described is the problem that we have, which is the idea that I can pay for a little bit of a service which will then deliver me a certain mm-hmm. sort of truth. Now, I don't want to, I get a little bit frustrated when people at the BBC start to sort of go on rants and crusades against fake news and try and like reaffirm their position as like an objective source of news because I just don't think the research really backs up. But that said, there is exactly, as you say, an important principle there of universality. But this is why I'm always trying to persuade people that you shouldn't be thinking of the BBC as something like a subscription service that we pay for like Netflix. It should be part of our collective... Um, It isn't, right? But this is what I think it should be. It should be part of our collective wealth of culture and information. And the problem is, if you have a commodification of that, then certain people get catered to more than others. That's what happens with the private media. Now, I think we're in an interesting moment now, actually, because with digital media, you anybody can access something right if you have a piece of information out there you produce the podcast and this can get replicated at any number of times and anybody can listen to it and one person listening to this podcast doesn't stop another person listening to it so we've got zero marginal costs in a digital economy actually i think a public system of production would be much much more efficient than a private one because if you think about what the Murdochs of this world want to do uh, and and the new Murdochs like a lot of people who are actually producing content so not the platforms the people producing content is that they, they're trying to monetize that product and the way they want to do it is they just want to get behind the paywalls and they want you to have a subscription for it and the problem for, with that is that it means that essentially what capitalism has to do or capital has to do is it has to exclude people from enjoying certain things in order to monetize them and then that means that the whole social system starts to gear itself towards that activity so what i'm saying is that i think we should all be paying for the bbc but i think we maybe need to think about paying for it in a different way and we need to think about a very different type of institution but we are but i really do think then this goes back to the beginning that um it would be much better to have a public um, publicly funded form of cultural
2: production and distribution. But do you see that, right? Sorry, given... my, mind,
1: that's, my mind's just blown. Like but that's so interesting. You, given way
2: things are going, right? <laughs> given the way capital's moving, capital's moving to the way of ring everything from your phones to the internet. So the idea that this, even though it's a, it's a good that should be shared with everyone, capital's telling you, like, we need to split this up. Yeah. Politics is telling you to split this up. Nationalism saying we need different internets. I don't see that happening because the, the the force of things is telling people to go to follow this one, to split things up. So poor people, you might get a shitty internet, but rich people, you get the decent one. Mm-hmm. China gets its own internet, Russia gets its own internet, because this is the way, so I think they called it the splinter net now. Yeah, but this is the thing. I mean, this is the direction of travel, but this is exactly
0: why we need to find a, a different direction of travel, and I agree. What I'm not saying is that the, the current direction of travel is for what I'm arguing yeah. for, what I want to argue is that we have a choice now. And I think we're at a really important crossroads because what we're seeing now is the sort of at the end of what, gets now everyone's calling the legacy media, i.e., the you know, political economy of the press, which has operated for a few hundred years, to, towards a new digital economy, which is the dust is still settling on how that's going to work. And there's this jostling between these corporate giants in California uh, and state organizations, as you say, I mean, the United States and China. And, and the, the legacy media, what they're trying to do is they're trying to position themselves in that that economy, basically. So probably what we're going to see if there isn't a sort of bottom-up intervention is some sort of negotiation between the tech giants and powerful states and existing corporate interests. And what, what that's going to end up with, I think, is something much worse than the BBC and now yeah. it, and it's worth thinking about how we got the BBC because it was actually it was kind of by accident how we got there and that's why I think the future that like I'm talking about is much more daunting because the thing is I mean just very briefly um, the people didn't sit down and suddenly decide, oh we should have a public service broadcasting I mean basically what happened was um, loads of corporations had thought they could make money out of radios they didn't think they could make money out of broadcasting so that was kind of their business model was we need to sell radios right the thing was, in order to sell radios, you had to have some something being broadcast, because otherwise why we do not want to buy a radio, right? So the, they got together and they said, right, we need to have people sitting in studios, playing music and talking in order to sell our radios that we've got these levies on. Now, Marconi was leading the way, and there were various other corporations that had patents that approached the post office, Westinghouse, and they, these are basically like, you know, arms and company, logistics companies, so they've made lots of money in the First World War, and they're like the Google and Facebook of the day, right? These are the, the cutting edge of, like, capitalism at the time. And, and so they go into negotiation with the post office, and again, like, the post office, I mean, I always try and, like, remind people, this, cause it sounds so quaint, because it's like, post and pat, um, but the thing is, this my is... My
1: mind is blown, sorry, the, can I just say, like... The, oh, the post office is, is, like... It's
0: think of the post office as, like, the communicative infrastructure of like the the greatest state the world's ever seen like so the British Empire at this point um, you know dominates much of the globe um, it's a military superpower um, and that the BBC gets during this period of the general strike gets run out of the Admiralty you know which is like the Pentagon of its time right these big companies are negotiating with the post office and eventually they set on this idea of you form a corporate consortium that they call the, the British Broadcasting Company that company will produce this content and then you can sell your radios and the corporation's are like we're happy with that and off they go and they don't lose, show any more interest and they just want other people to do it for them so they can sit and, and cash cash their checks right um in the states it goes down a different route but they're not making any money in the early 1920s it's only in like the, the early 1930s that the big advertising companies start to start to really figure out how they're going to make money so that's why britain went in a different route than america it wasn't because they wanted to create a nice media like that sort of almost accidentally settled on this kind of institution that basically copies the british civil servants and servicery and that's why it has those features that you mentioned before about you know queens english
2: and um and then sort of high-mindedness well, this is what i would when i when i think of the bbc i think of the same kind of notions or that the pillars that run the civil service yeah permanence yeah impartiality yeah. anonymity those kind of things those same pillars yeah. replicated i think that's i think that's absolutely spot
0: on and you'd be amazed how many people miss this point actually like so impartiality as a value of the bbc i mean it's borrowed from the civil service and actually the structure of the civil service i mean one thing i noticed when i was started research on this was uh like some of the names of the positions were exactly the same as the names in mi5 and the reason i noticed that oh was that i was researching a relationship to the security state so you know you had the director general and you had the same thing over at oh the yes. security state um yeah. similar positions it was occupied by similar sorts of people they'd all been mobilized to war and come back to war and some of them were like they were still calling each other colonel or whatever <laughs> you know um so it, it it mirrored this sort of state status structure um but what they'd done is they'd kind of tried to negotiate, like you said, a quasi-autonomy from from politicians. And that happened during the general strike. Just at yes, at... So at 1926? Yes, 1926.
1: Can we just do a little summary of what the general strike was for our listeners that don't yes, know? Yes,
0: sure. So after the First World War, I mean, there, there'd basically been this sort of wave of, radi- of working-class radicalisation in, in Britain, and they'd the kind of been faced down by the Tory government, which was, were trying to revalue the pound. So it was basically... It was more or less an austerity project that, that had been similar to the austerity project we've just seen. It was uh, undertaken in the context of you know demobilisation, and it, it led eventually to a face down between the miners and the Tory government, and then the uh, trade union congress called everyone out on strike in support of the miners, and, and and eventually they they lose, and it was a it was you know a real seminal defeat for the British working class. Now. The BBC, at this point, becomes really important because they hadn't, they weren't independent. They were negotiating to become the British Broadcasting Corporation, but at this point they were still the British Broadcasting Company. They're trying to become a sort of pillar of the establishment. They're trying to get some permanence. And what they want is they want to be more independent than the government. Now, what the government does at this point is Churchill wants to uh, commandeer the BBC, get it under its control. And Stanley Baldwin, his prime minister, says, no, we don't want to do that, because if we take it under control, nobody will trust anything that the BBC says, so it will just be useless to us. And it's important to remember that most of the newspapers are shut down at this point, because they're <laughs> all on strike. So the BBC becomes a really important source of news. OK, so basically what happens is Stanley Baldwin um, realizes that they keep the BBC sort of under the threat of being taken over, and in, in sort of under the shadow of the state, as, as John Burt, one of later becomes Director General, uses that phrase then it will be more useful to them. Now, generally speaking, histories of the BBC say that, okay, uh, later the BBC sort of becomes more authentically independent. So even if you read like Nick Robinson's history of the BBC, you know, he'd be like, no one thinks that the BBC was impartial during this time, although actually The extent to which the BBC wasn't impartial, I mean, it's an absolute joke. I mean, they, um, John Reith, who was general of the BBC, he he edited speeches for the Prime Minister during the strike. And then when the strike stopped, thanked God and Prime Minister (laughs) for steering us through this difficult time and then he read Jerusalem. I mean, literally read the, the whole poem, thing, Jerusalem. Yeah, so over air. On. So on. And um, in the last verse, he got um. the BBC choir to sing in the background as he was reading it out. So that gives you a sort of feel <laughs> for how established, wow. partial the BBC wow. was, right? Yeah. Also, they moved into the Admiralty. You know, so literally were sitting there in the Admiralty. You know, the heart of the British imperial state at this point. Anyway, in the most sort of more, let's say. Less empirically based histories of the BBC. Usually, what you argue is okay, the BBC became like a bit more independent in the 1960s or whatever, and you know, some of that is true. But what I argue in the book is that, like, we learned something quite important about the BBC at that time, which is that. It, that, that sort of quasi independence it has, that sort of grey area, that's still the case. Right? It's still yeah. having to operate um, very close to the establishment, always under the threat of um, of, of being abolished. And mm-hmm. and we saw it in the last charter renewal process. So for people who don't know, like the BBC has to go back to the government traditionally every ten years. Like now it's 11, every eleven years to sort of take out of the political cycle. And asked to essentially continue to exist. <laughs> and and also it has to ask for its licence fee to get increased, because obviously with inflation it yeah. gets that's controlled by the government. So George Osborne was very explicitly politically minded in that in its negotiations. So and that has been that's taken place throughout the BBC's history. Um, I can't remember how we got onto that now. Where were we? I
1: I was I asked you about the general strike. Yeah. And then Oh I remember we about... were
0: talking about um how easy it would be to get to a different yeah. sort of BBC yeah. So, yeah. I guess what my, 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 the point I was trying to make was that the BBC we got, which I think is elements of our what definitely worth preserving, we didn't get through like some sort of g- groundswell of like uh, mobilization yeah. it, it was it was almost through a bit of serendipity <laughs> it fell on to, it fell in our lap.
1: So Tom, one of the things that I was sort of think about that's so fascinating, I could honestly listen to that sort of history, like that sort of detailed history like all day. Thank you so much. Um, One of the things that I wanted to sort of draw on that you mentioned briefly before we started talking about the general strike is that other media or broadcasting companies that set up and cater to particular group. Basically, i just maybe get you to talk to a little bit about how the BBC's failure in sort of diversity. Yeah. Basically, we've got like Netflix, we've got all these different independent ways of listening to different people. People are setting up podcasts, like all these different things. And it's sort of given people like me and Tiso, for example, like the opportunity to carve out our own spaces. Whereas traditionally, places like the BBC have excluded us on like phenomenal levels. So it's like, how do we sort of convince people that have been... Like that are now having their time to shine because of the failure of essentially of the BBC. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. It's 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 really difficult because there are there's so much exploitation that's bound up in like places like Netflix. But I can watch a show, a soap opera based in Ghana. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, but, it, there's so many different things that I, it...
2: I think there's a kind of uh, economic kind of argument here. So things like podcasts, yeah, there's low barriers of entry, right? So anyone can do this, right? To set up a TV programme, not many people have got the category. Yeah, sorry, I'm
1: being a bit broad. So, So like,
2: things like technology has made it easier for us and we become content creators. So it's weird how the system now will seek to appropriate us because they see value in what we do. So from iTunes doing podcasts to, like, the BBC doing their own podcast thing, they see value in what we do and something that they can't do effectively anymore, I think. So they will try to scoop that up.
1: And I just feel like as well... Some of the stuff that I see the BBC put out, like like, in my opinion, I think the best stuff that comes out of the BBC in terms of like soaps and drama and stuff is from BBC America, which obviously I like, I know that's a whole different like thing there, but some of the stuff that the BBC puts out and even the people they have hosting stuff or the producers and whatever, and I'm like, really? Like, It's so basic, like it's 2019. You've not got one person of colour like in in this department. You've not got one. Do you know what I mean? Like these really basic things now. And it feels like, like in all institutions, the pushback is just real. Like I just feel like it would just be so good for, yeah, all institutions should be like, yeah, we need to do better on this. This is how we're going to do it. And to me personally, I just feel like the BBC on that yeah um,
0: so, so there's I, I think there's like a bunch of different issues there like yeah the number, sorry sorry i just said loads of stuff <laughs> yeah no, no, they're, they're all really good points i'm just trying to think about how i can what, what i think about all of them uh, so so number one like um, the question of like you know, representing, I, th- I think, like, the, co- the diversity of, of culture and experience in Britain, I don't yeah. think the BBC has been good at, and I don't think it's ever been particularly good at that. So it's actually true that when ITV came along, the BBC did become more representative of working class life to some extent, um, but in basically trying to play catch up with, with ITV, um, but also that a lot of the cultural change that, that Britain went through started to sort of, changed the BBC because people who had been through the New Left and all of that started to work as producers, they started to make programming, different sort of art, but also I think, you know, the, the anti-racist movement and the women's movement and, and a lot of the other social movements of the 1960s and 70s, they actually had more of an achievement in creation of Channel 4 than than, than the BBC. So basically what happened was all of the pressure that uh, what was then called the duopoly, so BBC and ITV, which everybody felt wasn't representative of the diversity of Britain then, um, went into the creation of this new, explicitly alternative um, broadcaster. So basically the, the existing broadcasters were kept the same, they managed to get off the hook, and there was this interesting outfit set up in Channel 4. And I think, um, there are elements of that which in a reform BBC that we would want to to reflect and what I think is good about it Is it, it has this decentralized kind of element to it? So it has commissioning now the BBC does commission programs a lot of what you see on the BBC is made by big corporations um, Which are commissioned by the BBC But basically what happens there is we pay for stuff and then it goes to these big companies and then it goes to shareholders And I don't think that's good enough, but also I think there's a sort of magical thinking around the market that if we marketise stuff it's going to produce more interesting, more creative or more diverse or like engaging content. I don't actually think this is the case. Corporations and institutions like the BBC don't create art or culture. People create them. And then the question becomes what kind of set of institutions do we want to create which will best unleash people's creativity? Now what the BBC was at one stage quite good at was that they would get little teams of people together who were sort of fairly autonomous and they'd just kind of try and do something and they had a sort of, you know, muck about sort of ethos to them. And a lot of those, there were a lot of, tend to be men coming out of Oxford and Cambridge that had a certain sort of style to them, but that's like the golden age of the BBC and partly the reason that was good was the BBC expanded very quickly and its managerial structure didn't keep up, so it just basically meant there were people in a little studios somewhere and no one knew what they were up to, like just producing content, commissioning stuff. So like Dudley Moore and those people. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. but uh, you know, people often talk about Monty Python and being yeah. like, all oh, right, we're just gonna give these guys like the series and see how it goes, you know. Oh really, um, okay. Now, in terms of Netflix, the thing is like, Netflix is going to outspend the BBC no matter what because it's like this massive like global corporation and it's also in that period of expansion of getting new, new subscriptions and, and also with the amount of capital injection you can get as a, as a private corporation means they can be loads of stuff. Now the question becomes, right, mm-hmm. is it better because it's private? I know that's not the case. I think that the reason Netflix shows are good and the same reason HBO's shows are good actually is that they don't have advertisers. So if you think of the rhythm of a TV show when you watch it, right, Uh, The one, I don't know if it's a sort of stupid thing, example, but like CSI or something like that, (laughs) um, where like they have every, you know, like every 10 minutes, you know, something's going to happen. They're going to bring in a new character and they're going to stop and then they have an an advertising break. And Like obviously no one watches TV anymore, but even if you watch it without the adverts, it has the same rhythm. So, you know, at 45 to 50 minutes, it's gonna change rhythm, and then at five minutes before the end, they're gonna figure something out, and then, so all these shows have the same creative rhythm, right, now on a subscription service like Netflix, or even something like HBO, where they basically, they got your money, and they can just be more creative, because they don't need to keep you watching, because they've already, they got your cash already, right, so they can be a bit creative, and they can be innovative, and they can make programs that are kind of boring. So always, again, like I'm gonna talk very cliche, so I'm not very cultural, but like something like The Wire, which was like, they could make three boring shows, The Wire,
2: right? Thank Where you've been like, it's just people- Tisa like, no, no, hates The no, Wire. No, no, it's, not, it's, 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 it's true. People watch it cause it's the hype, right? But it's, some of it is so fucking boring. Yeah, exactly. So you can watch, watch three episodes, and people are just, two people have a conversation or whatever, and you're like, what are they even talking
0: about? Yeah, and then it yeah, just yeah, goes with yeah. to someone else. And then, and then suddenly like some people get killed and it gets exciting, yeah. but, the good thing about it was they could afford to be boring because if you think about the political economy of um, cultural production, what are the, what are the commercial programmes trying to do? They're trying to keep you glued to that particular programme. And you can see it a bit with Netflix. Like They always have to arrange their narratives so that you go on to the next show. Yeah. And so, because you can watch each um, other at once.
2: Like, so this happens, <laughs> yeah. with, I suppose, with Marvel's Netflix shows, right? Again, super boring. could be done in two, three episodes, but you, they to do the 13 to keep yeah. you going. But
1: can I just say, although I think that's a good point, I want to roll it back even further. Like, it's not difficult to not do another series like *Pole Dark*. Do you know what I mean? Like, I get it that like Netflix have got like loads of money, they can, they've got time, they can make shows boring, whatever. But something that they've done consistently is either have people of colour that are producing, working class people on screen, like all these different things. And I just feel like yeah the bbc's under pressure yeah, yeah. but so, so. this is just i just think for so, me it's really basic. sorry yeah i, I didn't yeah. i didn't
0: get to, i didn't really get to this point yeah, it yeah. should have been the first point i made really which is that again, the bbc's um diversity or whatever you want to call it i mean it's it's not great but it gets particularly bad when you get near the top yep. so it's the people who do the, the commissioning of the shows and the people who tend to set the sort of agenda for its mm. journalism and so on. so If you look at the statistics, they're not that bad. Um, But part of the reason is that they include the World Service staff there, who, by definition, they tend to be drawn from the places that they're trying to represent, so they tend to be less white. Um, Now, so overall, the BBC looks okay. I mean, much better than you think from the, the cultural stuff that it produces. I think... I mean, maybe, I don't know how much time we have to get on to the question of reform, but I I would want the BBC to be decentralized. So basically you would reduce all of the internal, that sort of hierarchical managerial structure, you'd localize um, its production, and you'd have boards which are elected by the, you'd either have like lots, so like people representing people, or, or elected by licensee payers, but elected by staff as well. You'd have diversity to the point where, Britain, it would have to represent the diversity of Britain in terms of its recruiting practices, but also the boards, right? So you would have half of membership of it that the board would have to be female, right? You'd have to have ethnic minority representation, you'd have to have rep- representation for um, LGBTQ communities and so Disability, on, right? And this yeah. this would be the only because if you th- this is the problem if you have a basically okay half of our, our, our staff have to hit certain metrics, it's like well actually it's the it's the decision making level that you need to affect, and I think for this. Um, you 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 do need to have some quite radical organisational change, and and partly because once you do that, and you saw us with Channel Four, once you get once you get sort of kick up a bit of dust, people you will tend to get new blood in that will want to try and make a name for themselves. I, I think the other thing is that just having a hierarchical managerial institution just produces the kind of low-risk cultural products that you're talking about, yeah. and it tends to be aiming for conventional kind of market stuff. So if you think of, like, I mean, I've never watched Poldar, but, like, I, I guess it's like the, the sort of... It's, um it I. It, it, it's, like, taking a classic kind of British, um, you know, uh, yeah. aesthetic, isn't it? And it's, sort of, and, and it's very low-risk, and it's competing with, like, the ITV stuff, and... Um, but but it, I think the big the big thing is that the, this isn't just the fact that the BBC is bureaucratic. Like it, it's also that they're commissioning it from these big bureaucratic corporations. So like you get ten about ten companies by next year are going to be producing like eighty percent of the BBC's commissioned programming. So that it's a problem in the private sector yeah. as well, right? So what I think we want is we want to have programs commissioned from small producers and from cooperatives who are locally based that can use and start to think of the bbc more as a universal platform and a source of expertise and an infrastructure that we should all own and that uh, that rather than being something which is just going to deliver stuff for us because basically if you have people sitting in a room thinking oh how can we deliver interesting cultural products the point is people don't know what's interesting and you I think I don't really, even if it was my job to be like commissioner, so I would produce shite because that's like, that because I don't know what's even going to be good. I don't know what I'm going to enjoy particularly because I'm just not a very creative person like that. I think you need to have people who, with a certain amount of autonomy to take risks and I think you need to have people with a diversity of life experiences to bring to the table. But
1: why is, why is risk always associated or in line with whiteness? Isn't, that's my thing like why is this con- why, is, this why a consist- is it low risk yeah why stuff? Why is that low risk even though you know that we watch tv right, we think, watch tv and we want to see ourselves I think the like, interesting and you question, know that people watch that stuff as well
2: it's its closeness to the establishment it's proximity yeah. to center so why would it seek to it seeks to reproduce cultural artifacts that it can reinforce its position so it becomes that place i think the bbc sees itself as the kind of the fourth sphere of checking government so you've got executive legislature judiciary and the BBC kind of sits there and it likes to pretend that it kind of checks government so it reinforces these cultural narratives and cultural norms and I expect it to do the same I don't I don't expect it to be any different and I, but I what's on what you're saying like that kind of notion of that decentralization I think that it that would work but it's the fact that it's part of the institution because the civil service has the same problem it's trying to introduce market reforms to make it more business like, make it more private sector, make it more efficient. But it struggles. The NHS struggles to do this. Well, I think this comes
0: down to the basically what I think is the central lie that lies at the heart of neoliberalism. I mean, it's like two things really. Number one, which is that markets breed efficiency. I mean, they don't. And anybody who worked in any so market based institution, I mean, it's just a joke. Um, uh, David Graeber has a good passage in one of his books where he says that it should be a, it should be a sociological like law that basically every effort to introduce to cut red tape and introduce efficiency proliferates bureaucracy and creates waste and I, I think that's that's basically the case and you can see it I mean part of what I did for my PhD that then became the parts of the book was looking at what happened to them and the BBC became marketized internally um, and it, it was basically neoliberal management and it was very cutting-edge in that and the same thing was going on at the NHS so number one, the idea that like, markets create efficiency, they never do. They do, I mean, to get a certain type of efficiency, they obviously allow the conditions for capital accumulation, but very wasteful in terms of human labor, and I mean, it comes back to the point I was trying to make earlier about open access, right? That's the most efficient method of production. Number two, the idea that like um, precarious working conditions or um, markets that produce precarious working conditions Um, are associated with creativity. See, I I think this is the other lie. The idea that innovation is driven by by markets. I mean, just empirically, this isn't the case. Uh, And I think it does come back to your point about like, okay, why is the risk averse always white? Mm. And I think you're both right. Number one, it's because they're part of the establishment, it's because they're white, Mm. uh, predominantly the people making these um, Mm. programs, but also, even the people at the BBC aren't white of are the, are the similar sort of social milieu. You know, they've gone through the same schooling. They, they have the same sort of taste, the same kind of inclinations. Um, but the other thing is that, you know, it's just a simply majoritarian thing. Like, first of all, there's a lot more white people in Britain, um, statistically, I mean, and also a lot more of them watch TV. I mean, we all consume the BBC, but if you look at the people that are actually right sitting down him. and watching it day in, day out... Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about our own media consumption mm-hmm. habits, or I don't like consumption, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, it would be very different to somebody who was like twenty years twenty years older
1: than us. But I guess sorry, I'm not I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying, I'm just sort of trying trying to prod this idea a little bit. It's like even if you're going down the capitalist neoliberal argument route, like we know that they diversity and inclusion or whatever you want to call it being inclusive of people of color black people in your production in your teams actually makes them money as well do you know what i mean like there's 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 evidence of that whether it's through music media tv shows like it, it just i i just feel like it's got to be all those things that you've said i think are reasons why it stays like that so those three those three reasons but i think there's something else as well like a A pushback which is to do with wanting to not be, like, an actual want to not be inclusive, regardless of if it's going to make you more money. You think the BBC doesn't want to be more inclusive? I don't think people like change. I think when it comes down to it, institutions are set up to exclude. I think that if you tell people what they're doing is excluding people as well within their practice in the BBC, they don't like that. I think that's
0: all true, I, I think that... Um, Sorry, I mean, slightly cynical. <laughs> but from, from my perspective, my, my feeling on this is that, um, you know, the, the people who work at the BBC are just part of society like anyone else. They mm-hmm. they carry with them all of the same sort of sets of uh, assumptions which will which will influence how they work as well as their sort of professional ethos or the sort of, you know, what journalists insist on calling groupthink of the institutions that they're operating in. So I, I think it will be all those things, but I also think that... Um, addressing that that the BBC basically most of the problems I think are associated with its hierarchical and status character, and also, I mean, I I think also the the lack of representation. But I th- but I but I mainly think that the problem is that that stems from the establishment a certain understanding of where the sort of cultural intellectual center of gravity is or or should be, mm-hmm. and then I, you know. Neoliberalism, I mean, the BBC's not making any money off its programs, you know, so it's not, that, that, that kind of analysis can only take you so far. But they want uh, more
1: viewers, because they want to be able to justify. Ultimately, uh, yeah,
0: they want, yeah. they depend on audiences for their legitimacy, um, and particular slots have to attract a certain amount mm. of, of viewers and listeners, that, uh, and all of that. But I think um, one of the things I was trying to do with the book is, like, think about a public service organisation like the BBC, a quasi-market public service organisation. And, and approach it sociologically without having to sort of implicitly think, okay, the market is in itself bad, so let's find the market thing that makes this organisation bad, right? Mm. To, to just approach the BBC with a sort of, um, quite openly and say, okay, what, what, what do we think based on the research are the problems with this institution? I think like it's difficult for me in a way to address this specific question, partly because I haven't researched it in, in enough depth because really the, you know, my PhD work and a lot of the existing research was around you know, coverage of war and, and business. And and for the most part, like, racism was only a, a quite narrow section of the book where I talk about politics and particularly like sort of politics of the white working class, which I know is something that you've discussed a lot. Mm. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm slightly reluctant to sort of hold forth on this question, really. Like, But,
2: but I, think, I think when you talk about the idea of decentralisation, I think the BBC has started to do this and it does it particularly well as in, like, it kind of like the platform for the kind of framework for your expertise, and it kind of pulls things up from the bottom is like in its radio shows, like BBC One Extra, BBC the agent. So it's taking these smaller Asian groups network, yeah. and giving them the frame. Uh, the, the, the possibly
1: ahead of its time. Yeah. Actually, doing so that, it's letting them, letting people it.
2: use stuff, like people who are smaller producers, smaller cultural uh, products, and letting give, providing them with that framework, the structure to let them get their art across. Yeah. So I think the BBC does do that where it's, it's in its kind of experimental bits, like uh, the, the, the kind of digital radio stations, it's not part of the mainstream yet. And I think I think the challenge will be, how does it incorporate that into the mainstream? Mm. Because the mainstream is, as we know, it's for all the things we just described. It's a part of the institution, it's how it perceives itself.
0: Yeah, I, I think the best bits of the BBC have generally been at the margin. Yeah. I mm. mean, often when I go, because I guess my, my focus basically on the book, I mean, I, sh- I should have started by saying things that I've researched and it. I haven't. I mean, mainly my research has been a sort of, like the politics of the BBC and its business reporting and fairly narrowly like news and current affairs. Right now, people often say to me, "Oh, what about this and that that the BBC does?" And we talked quite a bit about cultural production because it's something I've become more interested in now. But People often say, "Oh, you know, what about the documentaries department? What about this? What about that?" I mean, the simple answer is that there are different bits of the BBC that have been more politicised and more brought under managerial control. And this comes back comes back to Thatcherism. You know, they they went after the BBC under under Thatcher and you know more or less sacked the uh, director general at the time, um, and he was replaced by somebody who was given a brief to get journalism, BBC's journalism, in order. And his what he did, basically, was he just centralised all the managerial authority and editorial authority and reformed the BBC quite deliberately, right? Now, the bit, so the bits that the BBC is under political pressure, in a sort of risk-averse fashion, the BBC hierarchy will itself bring under control because of that external political threat, not just from the government, but from other interests, the sorts of people who can call up the BBC and say, what on earth are you doing, right? Um, which we can't. They, they internalise that external power relations if you like in their sort of bureaucratic structures mm. what i'm trying to say is there are bits of the bbc where like powerful people don't care like they don't care about um okay yeah. let's get david attenborough for example right yeah. they were not very good in climate change whereas netflix did much better st- much better work there so that's a political part of the sort of wildlife stuff but when it was just wildlife like nobody cared about that stuff so okay what about this brilliant stuff that the bbc is doing in documentaries well that's all the stuff that the the elites don't care about they don't mind so they, they people you can go to the bbc you can get on with that you're you're never gonna have to worry about and i'm talking about people at the bbc calling you up and saying what the hell are you doing i'm talking about you don't have to internalize a certain office politics in order to get by in advance that is politicized basically yep. so i think you're right i think that i, I get the sense you disagree on this no, no, but no, 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 uh, no, no i was i mean about like the sort of uh BBC Sounds and the Asia Network and these kinds yeah, of elements. Yeah. So I don't
1: know if you wanna So I think that. so I think separating, yeah, the two there. So one extra, BBC, BBC Asian network, all those things, I think they were, as I said, I think they were ahead of their time. I think they've been incredible. Like some amazing people have been found through those things. And as you say, T, like people have had autonomy. In the launch of BBC Sounds, I think if I'm slightly cynical about is it, because I feel like they're has been uh, through, yeah, through digital media and particularly through podcasts, you've got more people on the margins that are able to, yeah, put their voice to stuff. And I feel like the BBC have, in terms of bureaucracy, in terms of money, in terms of how the, these things are getting produced, I feel like it's slightly appropriating, basically, things that have been produced independently by those that the BBC have previously excluded. That isn't to say that BBC Sounds couldn't be something that isn't that. And the more I listen to what you're saying, Tom, the more I see, I have hope that it could be done in a way that is ethical and just doesn't take the piss, basically. Which is what I think black people are used to having done by institutions like the BBC. So, yeah, I think it's, I, I mean, I know when we first sat down, I was like, yeah, wouldn't go on BBC, BBC Sounds. But like listening to you talk, like it does give me hope about what BBC could look like that... It was good basically, yeah. I think
0: one yeah. of the things we need to bear in mind about this stuff and that we've sort of touched on it anyway, is that The work that people are doing to produce content or analysis or like, you know, we could call it alternative media or we could call it like a a sort of cultural ecology that then goes online, like this podcast, for example, that should be part of our collective cultural wealth. And I think that's a good thing. But I think it's also a good thing that people should be paid for their labour. And the problem that we have right now, uh, and and this, again, like it tends to redound much more negatively on people of colour than it does on white people because of the way that society is structured, is it... And and actually, by the way, when the BBC marketised, there was somebody, and I forget his name, was working in the um what what was then the I don't know if they called it the diversity unit or they did at one stage. Who said if we marketise um our production processes, it is actually going to be ethnic minorities and women who 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 lose out. Um, just simply, they they knew that right. They they knew that this is what a less secure mm-hmm. working environment will will do. And so I think. The ecology yeah. that we're creating, like, like you said earlier, it, it opens up these great opportunities. Where does this cultural product go? It just goes, it doesn't go into nowhere. It goes into a set of platforms which are continually being scooped up by these um, by these tech giants. So what happens is you get these sort of organic bottom-up sort of processes where people are sort of coming into these platforms and then they're going to get bought up by Facebook, Google, mm-hmm. Apple, and the rest of them. So we need to have a platform which will allow us to do that without our le- unpaid labour basically going into being sucked up. Because we either get sucked up by the BBC, yeah. in which case I think, well, we want we need a new BBC that's going to answer to us, that genuinely yeah. belongs to us, rather than being this sort of top-down, sort of, you know, bureaucratic behemoth. Or we're going to just hand over our future to uh, these tech giants. And I, I think that's where we're headed, you know. And, and if we don't have... A political, a serious political intervention, and start to at least have a conversation about what would a public platform look like. Then I think we are just kissing our future goodbye, really. And and I think it's going to get more and more difficult to 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 produce interesting things. And just one more point about this voluntary cultural production. I think you can only do it for a certain amount of time before you get burnout, like uh, three or four years or something like that, because you can do it for the love of it. Um, you can do it because. It feels good because people are showing more interest in what you're doing and you can put it out there, but gradually you're going to realise that I, and partly it's a life stage thing, so like, yeah. you know, it, and again, it's more difficult for people to balance, like, caring responsibilities and the rest of it, um, but just psychologically, I think it just gets very difficult. So I think we need to think about, number one, how do we fund cultural production collectively, like, and democratically, um, and number two, what, where will this cultural production go? And that's why I'm trying get people to think about, okay, if we were going to have something like the BBC, which was more like a democratic public platform, right, what would that look like? And I think the thing is that any objective account of the people running the BBC right now, now, there are people moving in the right directions, there are people whose hearts are in the right place, but the leadership of the BBC, even if it were inclined to do this, is not in a position to do it. Um, the Labour Party has made some interesting noises around this, like for, came from Jeremy Corbyn, but again, it, it's going nowhere. So... I think there's quite urgent need to do this. Um, without again wanting to sound too kind of alarmist, but no, I
1: think it's a, I, I said to you before, I think it's an emergency. Like I can't believe we've we haven't even spoken about the far right this episode. T like that's. that's do you know what I mean? That sometimes when I see stuff that the BBC are doing or not doing, I'm like, we actually need you to step up now because we've got people that are lit. Like as yeah, T always talks about being radicalised online through these people people that are setting up. Like mm. alternative media spaces because of what. But
2: I I yeah, I, 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 I see the BBCs. For me, I think it returns like in, like how must kind of things to think like the system and the life world. So this kind of life world stuff that produces these great cultural products, but this system seeks to kind of colonise it. But it's not too sure how it's doing it, and so it's kind of caught between being it wants to marketise because it sees i don't know for example like disney plus step into the market and disney are massive now and they're buying up everything and that becomes a problem so news feeds become politicized cultural cultural products become politicized and so you kind of you end up in a kind of funny space where now people are consuming sometimes nonsense really there seems to be no control so the bbc finds itself in this kind of place where it wants to be something i don't know what i don't know done this is my own personal thing i don't know what it wants to become
1: like even, it's, even it's, it's this confused. new thing that they've launched him with the itv did you see the like logo for it and stuff it looks like the brexit it looks like a brexit like white national like do you know what i mean like things like that and it's like come on but like I, I think it's we an identity need to crisis step up like we actually like it isn't it is an emergency the way i
0: usually put this is I I mean I think the BBC needs to be saved from itself like it's not going to be um, yeah it's not capable of delivering the kind of public media that we need yeah but also people aren't thinking from the ground up because people aren't used to thinking like this what kind of public media do we need? What do we want the BBC to look like? And, I, you know, I find myself in a bit of a funny situation with this because I go around giving talks about the BBC and now I've become the guy who thinks we should keep the BBC. And then, so, like, yeah. when I start talking about it, they'll be like, oh, you know, but the BBC does this and that. Why are you being so harsh on it? That was, like, you know, five years ago. Um... And like now, people are like, the BBC, are you kidding me? You know, they're, they're conservative, they're racist, they're part yeah. of the establishment. Okay, and and I think that's all correct. But I think but there's a danger that what we do is we start to sort of fetishize this great big institution, not think about what makes it the way it is. And that's what I was trying to do with my research is to think about, okay, there's not just one thing that's the BBC, there's a whole set of causal relationships going on. So I wanted to try and like, sort of lift up the bonnet and think, okay, we know the BBC reports in this way, what are the things that make it do that? So I, I think... Some of that stuff's straightforward, right? So we need to make the BBC independent governments, we need to make it more democratic instead of top-down, we need to make it more responsive, we need to make it more localised, we need to make it more representative. And all these things, I think that would have a quite dramatic shift in the BBC's culture if we were to do those things. But we need to do so much more than that because I think it needs to be part of a much more ambitious shift in the digital political economy. And so really, it needs to be, first of all, connected to... Uh, Universal access to digital services, um, that needs to be publicly funded. I think we need to have something like the British Digital Corporation or the British Digital Cooperative, as my friend Dan Hind is now calling it, something that will be producing apps and technology in the public interest. So not to monetize things, but to actually try and build a kind of broader media ecology of which I think the BBC should be part. But we need to think about, okay, well, what, what, what then would public broadcasting be and it might not be doing a lot of the things that it's done up to now.
1: Would your model allow Ben, what's his name? Ben Ben
0: Shapiro. Shapiro.
1: Is he allowed in that space?
0: Well I think you know we, we get into difficult questions here with like with no platforming and the rest of it which i just don't i just don't think we're going to have enough time to sort of do no, justice no, to no. really what i think it would do would it it would create less of an incentive if, if you structure the the digital economy in the right way it's not going to stop people having reaction reviews it's not going to stop People being racist. I mean, we all know, like, that British Britain is a racist society. What it might do is it might take back some of the problems we have around the attention economy, around algorithms. So one of the things which, so I wrote a with a group of people something called draft proposals for reform of the BBC for the Media Reform Coalition. Um, and one of the things we talked about there was algorithmic transparency, so that we should be able to, at the moment, all our algorithms are based on our behaviors and the behaviors of others, we should be able to see, why am I being recommended this, right? Well, I want to see X, I, I don't, for example, you should be able to go in there and say, I, I, I wanna see what people are watching in such and such a place, or I don't wanna see a program which is like people I'm watching, I wanna see what someone completely different is watching. Or you could say, just surprise me with something, right? And the reason why the existing platforms don't do that is that they're designed to keep our attention. So, what the best way of doing that is that they're following our behavior all the time and seeing what keeps us clicking, which is which means that. So, yeah. if you go on your Twitter feed, you'll see that it will give you a list of instead of people you follow, it will be the people you've interacted with. And the reason it's doing that is because they they know that they keep putting them in front of you all the time. That and and even if it's negative, right? So, like that's why Twitter has a lot of. This, Quote treating, I mean, I do. I'm terrible into it. So I just make lots of negative, <laughs> sarcastic remarks. It brings out the absolute worst in me. But same, I think same, it does everybody, right? Yeah. But the the point is, it it is there is a struct there is a, a a structure of these tech um, companies which is driving certain forms of behavior. And oh, I yeah. think with the Shapiro staff. I mean, I don't want to say there's, it's not. There's not going to be racist in that system, but if we can disincentivise some of the sort of because some of these guys are just sort of contrarians, you know, like yeah. they're, what no, they're doing. No, Tom, is, well, I uh... think that's
1: a really good. I think that I wasn't expecting you to be able to answer that question. Okay. And that was re- that's a re- that's a good answer, isn't it? Like sort out the algorithms.
2: Yeah, uh, I was going to say just what you're saying is right. I think, you, but is there a place for this idea of a public good? I think that's. has got to
1: retrieve it. There's a
2: there's a tension there between what we see as a public good, and the kind of neoliberal forces that that are kind of prevalent. And it's so in that kind of that neoliberal thought is so entrenched in how people think and how people consume media now. They mm-hmm. consume it on a kind of individualistic kind of. It's me. Yeah, media. but I
0: think I think that's been normalised through our behaviour. You know, we've <laughs> yeah. we've been the, the reason it seems so normal to us is because we we there are these machines which have been fine tuned the design to encourage us to behave in certain ways and to respond to our behaviour, right? The thing is, like, uh, it, you can change something very quickly and suddenly something else feels normal. And this is kind of the silly example I used with my students was, like... Um, the smoking ban in the UK, right? So I was a smoker for a while. And you sit you sit in pubs and there'd be clouds of smoke everywhere. <laughs> and within about two months after the smoking ban, people would be like, do you remember when we used to sit in the pubs where it was just clouds <laughs> of <to> smoke everywhere? <laughs> now, what I think is interesting about that is that you just, if, as soon as the actual, when you think about culture or norms in that very sort of vague kind of sense, it feels very imposing. But when you think about how quickly you can just change something through regulation or, or structure, I think human beings norm get used to normal things very quickly. And another sort of sorry, a bit slightly boring example is recycling. Like I've I got so used to recycling now that I feel weird putting things in the bin, but like five years ago I just wouldn't have given it any thought; just chuck everything in, in there, you know. Yeah. But that's the point is, and I think it comes back to this question of like and the public good. I think we want to build structures that allow us together to define what the public good is. And if we're able to do that, because we're all responding to each other's behaviour at the moment on social media, but we're doing it channelled by these kinds of platforms that, in very negative ways. <clears throat> I think the challenge is, can we build platforms that allow us to think collectively about the public good and how we want to behave with each other in a more deliberative way? Like, in, since you mentioned Habermas earlier, that's that should be, for me, like the starting point. Acknowledging what's wrong with these tech platforms, but also thinking what's wrong about the BBC and just starting to think about And also just believe that it's possible, like, you know, I think it is. Think how quickly these platforms took off, like, and and how quickly social change can take place. It it just needs, but I think, I really do think we need a sense of agency to do that. We have to believe that that change is possible for the good. And um, I think we are in a positive moment to do that. I mean, I hope we are anyway, so
1: boom i
2: think that's, yeah. a, that's a great it's that's a, a good a,
1: note yeah that's a great note thank you so much for joining thank us so tom nice. that was i'm my mind's blown like i want to go like read more about the bbc now thank you to our patreon supporters you've got an episode coming up after this if you haven't yet joined our patreon community and you are able to bear a couple of coffees each month then please do join sign up no, if you can. Okay, anyway. Thank you. See you next week guys. See ya.
2: Bye-bye, bye bye. Bye.